Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, a warm welcome to everyone who's joined us online and everyone here at Clemens. We're glad to see you. We are in a series entitled The Battle, and we've acknowledged three realities thus far as uh, we made our way through the series. Number one, we've said that every human life is going to experience conflict. Conflict is a natural, normal part of life here on this planet. But we've also said, secondly, that conflict of a particular kind also belongs to believers. There is a more serious conflict that believers face, and that is spiritual conflict. Spiritual conflict that comes from three sources, the Scripture tells us. It comes from the world around us, it comes from the devil beyond us, and it comes from the flesh inside of us as well. And of these three, the greatest enemy we face is the devil beyond us. We said thirdly, and we've acknowledged that all three of these forces served like masters to us. We were slaves to them, and uh, that all of the world is in slavery to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil until a person comes to personal faith in Christ Jesus. When we come to faith in Christ, those old masters, those old uh, uh, powers that controlled and directed us, their power over us is broken. Their power over us is broken. But these old masters, what believers discover, these old masters that once controlled and influenced us go from being masters to being our determined foes. And so we find that in the transition, going from death to life in Christ, we leave our old masters, but we gain some new enemies. And one of the great necessities of the Christian life is understanding who our enemies are, how they work, and ultimately how we can and should overcome them. And the scripture is very plain. We can in Christ. By God's help and with his grace, we can overcome these, these enemies. And the scripture gives us very specific strategies for each of these enemies. Now, last week together, we looked at uh, the devil beyond us and we gave particular attention to his story and his character to where he's been, to, to where he is now, and to what he is like. Today, we're going to give attention to how he works. And the next time we're together, we'll look at how he can be ultimately and finally overcome. So I want you to take your Bibles or take your smartphones. Look with me at 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to be focused on verses 5 through, or 6 through, rather, 11. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And what we find in our passage for the morning is that Peter is addressing believers, and he's instructing them, and he says this to them. He says, 
Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, verse 5, believers are then to, verse 6, humble themselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that, Peter says, at the proper time, he may exalt you. Humble yourself, casting, verse 7, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we acknowledge you to be the great overcoming God, that in Christ you have overcome all that was overcoming us. And for this, we bless and we thank you. And Lord, we acknowledge, we confess that Jesus is life, And we confess that Jesus is both life and light. He is the light of men. And he has come into a world of great darkness. And we bless you, Father, that the darkness has not overcome his light. Father, today, we ask, we seek, that you would continue to grant to us the peace that you've made possible in Christ We acknowledge, Lord God, that in this world we have lots of tribulation. But we remember, we hear the Lord Jesus saying, be of good cheer. I've overcome. Lord God, may it be said of us that we were in these days not overcome by evil, but that we overcame evil with good. Help us, Lord, not to fear the evil one who is our greatest enemy, but grant to us fresh faith, deeper faith, and greater faithfulness so that we might see him overcome in our lives, overcome in the life of our church, and overcome beyond us as well. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, loved ones, as we come to 1 Peter, I want you to notice something with me. As you read this letter, one of the things you discover is that he's addressing followers of Jesus who are themselves facing pressures and even persecution for their faith in Christ. The maltreatment and the discrimination they're experiencing isn't always state-sponsored and it isn't always official, but it is cultural, it is sporadic, it is local, and it is very real. And it is in many ways much like the discrimination we're witnessing in various places in our own nation today. You may know the story of Jack Phillips, who has been called America's most famous baker because since 2018, his story has been that, or actually since 2010, his story has been that of people taking him to court, in fact, taking him all the way to the Supreme Court in order to force him to bake cakes for them. This past March, he was back in court for a third time, again defending his uh, refusal to bake a cake with a message 
that he says goes against his Christian faith and his Christian beliefs. Phillips owns the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado. He holds traditional views on marriage and traditional views on sexuality, much as we do as a church. The first legal action against him came via the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, where in 2012, he declined to bake a custom cake for a same-sex wedding and was accused of unlawful discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. In the first go-round for Phillips, in the case Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, the Supreme Court ruled seven to two for Mr. Phillips on the grounds that the commission had displayed clear and impermissible hostility to his religious beliefs. One commissioner had compared Philip's invocation and declaration of his Christian beliefs to defenses of slavery, compared it to the Holocaust and Nazism. Philip's latest trial started March 22nd in Colorado State Court. It dates back to 2017, where Autumn Scardina called his shop and requested another custom cake, pink on the inside, blue on the outside, reflecting her gender transition. When the shop refused, she complained again to the commission, and again, the commission came to get Mr. Phillips pressed charges, but then dropped those charges in 2019 after Phillips filed a countersuit in federal court against the state. Ms. Gardena then filed her own suit. Now, given that Mr. Phillips has already lost about 40% of his business because he stopped making his signature custom wedding cakes, you can't help but believe these suits are plainly aimed at harassing him into submission. Ms. Gardena explained that she told the bakery the design was, quote, intended for the celebration of my transition from male to female, end of quote. But after Masterpiece turned down this cake, she called again to request another, this time asking for a cake that would feature Satan smoking a joint, a temple of Satan, and a sex act. Now, how you get all that on one cake, I don't know. I don't really want to think about it. Mr. Phillips declined again because of the message. And while Phillips serves everyone, regardless of gender identity or sexual orientation, he won't make certain kinds of cakes for anybody. He won't make a Halloween cake. And so it seems that what the Colorado Commission on Civil Rights and people like Ms. Gardena really want aren't cake, but to force Jack Phillips to express speech he objects to, even though it means abandoning his Christian beliefs and his faith. And they will force him out of business if he doesn't comply. Phillips' case is still in the Colorado court system, and many believe that it will end up again in the Supreme Court. 
Now, I noticed that the late uh, Kobe Bryant and Tim Duncan were inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame uh, recently, and well, they should have been. If I were making nominations for the Faith Hall of Fame, I would certainly want to see Jack Phillips in that Hall of Fame because he has stood and stood strong for his faith despite phone call after phone call after phone call and harassment after harassment after harassment for his beliefs. Now, no doubt, First Peter can bring uh, special encouragement to believers like Jack Phillips and to you and to me. Why? Because before his letter ends, Peter reminds his readers of the unavoidable fact that, watch now, salvation in Christ joined to a living faith in Jesus will always bring opposition. And it will always bring opposition from Satan. At the same time, Peter reminds them that their faith in Christ guarantees victory over this great enemy. So last week, we saw that overcoming the devil begins with understanding his story and his ambitions as well as his character. We said that knowing your enemy is always half the battle. Today, we want to examine his methods, how he works. When we're back together again, we'll examine his weakness and how he can be overcome. All of this is urgent information for every believer. Why? Because the devil can't get at God directly and because he failed to destroy God's liberator in Jesus. The devil and his cohort are now focused on wreaking as much damage and destruction as they can. And they seek to do it on God's people. They seek to do it on his church. They seek to do it on his creation before they lose all their remaining control over this world. So the devil and his occupying force try to strike back at the God they can't touch by striking at his people who remain here. Jesus and the apostle John both affirm that believers can overcome this evil one and his demons, but the question is how? Peter lays the foundation for an answer here, and he shows us just how believers begin to overcome a very determined enemy, more cunning and more powerful than they can ever be. And I want us this morning to look at what he has to say. Let's begin in verse 8. Notice with me, that in verse 8, Peter describes for us in, in very graphic terms how the devil works. He cautions believers by saying, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, devour means to drink down. It speaks to the devil's desire to annihilate the believer and the local church by intimidating, watch this, or enticing them to abandon Christ or to accept the evil that he promotes. This vivid picture is one that Peter is using because he wants it to stay firmly in every believer's mind. This prowling, this roaring, this devouring. The message 
The devil represents a constant, deadly danger to believers, to professing believers. Now, let's be honest and say that when you and I think about roaring lions, we tend to think about lions who are in a zoo somewhere, behind bars, who are relatively safe. And uh, so we probably don't quite get the picture. I noticed uh, right after Mother's Day in Houston, uh, did you see this? A tiger got loose and was roaming Houston. That must have been exciting. I saw pictures of it. It was a pretty big cat. Just can you imagine going out to, to check your mail and meeting a tiger? Yeah. You probably would have a little more of the feeling that Peter's trying to engender. But his first readers, as they hear this description of how the devil works, what they would have more than likely seen in their minds is not a, 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 a lion behind bars, but they would have seen a lion left free to do what lions naturally do, prowling suddenly and viciously attacking unsuspecting victims as a part of their day-to-day -day routine of life. Roaring, yes, but roaring after the prey has been taken. Now, unlike us, these letters, uh, this letter's first readers, they would have seen in their mind's eye with his picture, human blood dripping from the mouths of lions in the gory spectacle of a, a Roman amphitheater where Christians and others could be made to fight wild beasts as a form of public entertainment. So as you and I hear this passage, we need to uh, adjust our view and see just what it is that Peter is showing us. The devil devours, but he devours the unsuspecting. Consider then just how he does this and why. Peter and the rest of the New Testament show that the devil seldom attacks openly. He prefers to come as an angel of light. And when he attacks, uh, he attacks in such a way that believers are, are caught unawares. He may roar like a lion after he has them, but before he has them, he's more likely to come silently like a serpent. Open persecution and direct temptation are not his most common weapons. He prefers seduction. He prefers intimidation. And so he looks for ways to seduce believers away from the truth, away from the faith, or at least the practice of it. And if that doesn't work, he bullies and he pressures them to accept error especially when it comes to living out the truth as it is in Jesus. He'll make it easy for you to profess faith in Jesus, but practicing that faith, that's where he makes it hard. His goal is entrapment in error and evil with lies about life and how it's best lived. And in this way, and this is what I want you to see, he tests both the authenticity and the strength of professing Christians. And so if a person's faith is shallow, if a person's faith is fickle, if it's the kind of faith that is just a head alone kind of faith, 
or, or, or if it's the kind of faith that's just a heart kind of faith. And what I mean by that, if it's the kind of faith that acknowledges the truth that is in Jesus, but hasn't been, but, but that truth hasn't captured the heart. If it's the kind of faith that comes from an emotional experience, I heard a song, I heard a sermon, and I, I got emotional, and now somehow I must know Jesus. An emotional response without a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done, that's the kind of faith that will be professed, but it is fickle, it is shallow, it isn't a whole life faith. The faith that genuinely saves is a faith that, yes, captures the mind with the truth of who Jesus is. It also captures the heart with a love for what Jesus has done with the end result that all of life is given for him. All of life is given to him. That's the critical difference. But when a person has a fickle faith or a shallow faith, Satan will do all that he can to cause that person to abandon that faith. And he will use seduction and he will use intimidation to trap the, that person and destroy that faith and then lead them to abandon following Christ altogether. And that is one reason why we are hearing more stories of deconversion coming from former Christians, including a few former pastors. These are signs of spiritual warfare ramping up, of false and fickle faith being exposed. It shows us the power of the enemy in overcoming false faith and false professions of faith. I don't expect very many, if any, churches to come back after COVID as strong as they were in terms of attendance before. Why? I'll tell you. Because there are some who had faith here or who had a, 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 an emotional experience here but never had known a full life's commitment who discovered Hey, it's pretty nice not having to go to church on Sunday. It's like giving myself another, another day off. And now I got to say, I, I get that. I will confess to you that it was really nice to sit back with a cup of coffee in my pajamas and watch myself preach. <laughs> I, I just got to tell you, I've never had a weekend in my entire life like I had during COVID. Because my dad was a pastor, I'm a pastor, you never get weekends. Never do you get weekends. Oh, you guys, you get weekends. I'm, never, I'm going, wow, this is pretty nice. Unbelievable. And if the sermon was really good, I'd get two or three cups of coffee and watch it twice. But it was just so nice and easy and comfortable. But there are some people who've gone, you know what? Truth of the matter is, that hadn't really changed my life all that much. And it hasn't. 
Because in truth, their lives really weren't changed to begin with. Yeah, now I know their great-great-grandfather was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher I told you about last Sunday. And he was a believer, and their grandparents were believers, and their parents were believers, and they've just automatically kind of fallen into, I'm a believer too, so I'm going to do the church thing. But after COVID, they don't really see the point. They don't really need it. Never really wanted it. Glad to be free of this. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. One of the groups that Satan goes after are those with a weak and a fickle faith. But there's another group that he goes after. It's a faith that's real but weak. The devil will also use seduction and intimidation to trap the true believer in fear or sin and thus hinder their faith from having its full transforming impact on life and on others. He convinces these believers to hide their faith or to accommodate their beliefs or to compromise their morality, to abandon their mission as salt and light in in a dying world. And to these ends, the devil stirs up hardship and suffering, pressure and persecution. For some people, the only thing that's required to knock them off, off kilter is disappointment or discomfort. Now, Peter, he knows this strategy of the devil firsthand. If you think about Peter's life, you see both seduction at work and you, you also see intimidation. You remember Matthew chapter 16, Satan seduced Peter to try to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. Jesus says, I'm I'm going to die. And and Peter said, no way. You can't do that. Do you remember how Jesus responded? Jesus saw right through what was going on. He looked straight at Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Satan. He wasn't calling Peter Satan. He was calling Satan out because he knew what Satan was doing. He had seduced Peter with the idea that if Jesus were going to be what Jesus needed to be, then Jesus would need to have a position of earthly power. And there's no way Jesus could have a position of earthly power if he were dead. Only problem was God had a far bigger plan for Jesus than just being a king over Israel. His plan was for Christ to be king over the world. And his plan, God's plan was not as simple as setting that uh, group of Jews free from enslavement to the Roman Empire His plan was to set generations of people free from the power that could ruin and destroy their lives. And Jesus would not be seduced. So he called Satan out. There's another time in Peter's life where we see intimidation at work. 
Later, Jesus would explain that Satan would try to sift Peter's faith during Jesus' arrest and trial and death, like a farmer sifts wheat, separating true from false. And Jesus says to Peter in Luke 22, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again to faithfulness, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that the faith of Peter was a real faith. He knew that his faith was going to fail with Jesus' arrest. He knew that he would betray him, but he also knew because Peter's faith was genuine and real, Peter couldn't stay away from Jesus forever. He couldn't stay unfaithful forever. He would come back and he said, then when you do come back, I want you to strengthen your brothers. But you're going to be intimidated. Do you remember how he was intimidated by a servant girl around the fire? You're one of those, aren't you? Oh, no, no, not me. Not me. You are one of those. Oh, not me, not me. And he started cursing. Listen, if you ever start cussing, you know you're on the wrong track. Oh, come on. Am I right or am I not? <laughs> Intimidation, what people think, what people want, what people require becomes the measure of what you do or don't do, what you own or don't own. So Peter knows what he's talking about firsthand. The truth is, so do we, even if we've not always understood what was happening to us. In sum, the devil has two key methods he uses when trying to destroy or damage the faith and the faithfulness of professing believers, and they are seduction and intimidation. He beguiles and he bullies. He uses fraud and he uses force, and he often alternates between the two. Consider one more time with me the experience of Jack Phillips. When Miss Scardino was asked why she wanted the Satan cake, she said she wanted to believe that Mr. Phillips was, and I quote, a good person, and she hoped to persuade him to see, quote, the errors of his thinking. Now, that's quite a tactic to take with someone you say is a good person to try to shut them down if they don't believe or do what you want them to do. But see this for the spiritual attack that it is. Miss Scardina isn't the issue. And the truth is, she's not the enemy. She isn't the ultimate source of what's happening to Jack Phillips. See the seduction, though, in this. Jack, you're a good person. And good people accept what, what you mistakenly call sin and evil. So change your beliefs, change your thinking. Be the good person we want you to be. Do the right thing as, as we define it and accept what is good as we define it. Come on, Jack. Hey, you'll get 40% of your business back. You won't get all those mean, hateful calls or threats on the phone or in front of your shop. Life will be better. It's going to be better. 
You're a good person. Just come on and go with us. Believe what we believe. Don't stay stuck in the past. Oh, oh, okay, it's okay. At one point she says it's okay if he believes that. He just doesn't need to practice it. See to the intimidation. Change your thinking or we will ruin you. Third time, the poor man has been taken to court. So what can and and should believers do? If, If this is how Satan works, then how can you as a believer begin to overcome him? Well, there are two actions that you can commit to as habits of life. Two actions you can use to begin to overcome the devil using the knowledge of his battlefield strategy of prowling, seducing, intimidating, and devouring that Peter shares. Do you see it? It's at the beginning of verse 8. He says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Now, to be sober-minded is to be spiritually alert in one's mind, in one's thinking and judgment. It's to live seeing things as God sees them. Okay, yes, you would say, but how? How how do you do that? And the answer is this, with time in the Word and time in prayer. Time with God in His Word, time with God in prayer. Personally, time with God in His Word, time with God in prayer, with His people around His Word. These are the things that keep our hearts and our minds clear and focused on his truth. Let me say this to you. Please understand that coming here on Sunday mornings for worship does not make you a follower of Jesus. But followers of Jesus will consistently, faithfully gather with other believers for the hearing of the word because we have a deep need to have our minds and our thinking constantly refocused on the truth and the word of God as it's come to be given to us in the Bible and especially in his son, Jesus Christ. The reason why this time is so critical and this is not optional, this is absolutely necessary. It is because if you don't have the preached word and you don't have time in the word, your thinking will begin to slip. You will no longer be sober and the lies of the evil one will begin to have an impact and influence on you and your living. You need to be here. You need to be here next Sunday. You need to be here two Sundays from now. You need to be here four Sundays. I know you're going to Myrtle Beach. Don't be here when you're at Myrtle Beach. That's hard. I get that. But when you are in town, you should be here. Why? Because you need the word of God, the worship of God, redirecting your heart and your mind to the things of God. You not only need this personally with other believers, personally in in quiet times, but your family needs this. Can I tell you one of the things my dad did that made such an incredible difference in my life as a boy growing up? 
Now, my, my father was super busy. He would gone all the time. He would blow in for supper. We would eat supper together, and he'd blow out again and just be gone. He was always on the go. I loved him, but he was always on the go. But one thing he did do is he was always at home for supper. And we would always eat together, and then every single meal, I can see him to this day, he would reach over, pick up a Bible, set it down, table had been clear, and he would read to us from the Word of God. Now, sometimes he would make comments because he was a preacher. He couldn't help it. He didn't preach to us, didn't offer an invitation, that kind of stuff, no. People have crazy ideas about pastors and their families. I don't, I don't know where you get them, but you got them. He, didn't, he would read. A lot of times he would just read and share maybe just a little bit. But, but the key thing was reading. And, you know, I can't tell you I listened every single time, and I can't tell you I liked it because most of the time I didn't. And it was like, oh, here we go again. I can remember when I was, if I had my kids at home and I'd pull the Bible out. I don't know what happened, but at our house, everything was funny as soon as I opened the Bible. Everything was, stuff that wasn't funny was funny. It was like spiritual warfare. I mean, you open the book, boom, you're in a battle. And I used to get so frustrated. It would be like, Ugh! you know, we're reading the word of God and you guys need to listen. Now listen, be kind, tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you get it? Preach. <laughs> now, they didn't say preach. <laughs> but I never told them this, but I get it because when I was growing up, everything was funny when we were reading the Bible too. I don't know why. I just, it's spiritual warfare. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, but. Here's, here's what I want you to see. He gave me an incredible gift because you know what he was telling me and telling us as a family night after night after night after night after night? You've got to know God's word, God's will, God's way of seeing the world. Our family is anchored in the God whose book this is our family is anchored in the son that he sent. This is who we are. Day in, day out, not just on Sundays, every day, we're his people. And we've always got to be sober. Thinking. Like he thinks. Peter says, be sober-minded, but he also says, be watchful. And that means to be focused in attention. It's to be alert for temptation, to be alert for opportunities to sin that are always at the heart of the attacks of the evil one. 
And this is why repeatedly in the New Testament, believers are warned against sleeping their way through life spiritually. The New Testament says things like this. If you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Listen, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Cast off those works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Wake up. In Revelation 3, Jesus says to the church at Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I haven't found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wake up, you're sleeping, you're nodding off, you're compromising, you're adjusting. Wake up. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. It's just not enough to hear the word and to receive the word. You gotta keep it. Once again, wake up. There is a kind of spiritual drowsiness in which you can drift and fail to see the evil God sees, that you can fail to see the signs of the presence and, and the activity of the evil one and go careening into compromise, into confusion when it comes to truth and find yourself beset by sin and its deadly consequences. In Christ, if you're truly his, if you're genuinely his, here's what you've got. You've got the ability to know and see Satan's strategies when they're at work in your life and around you. You've been given the capacity by the gift of the Holy Spirit to hear the word, to read the word, and to think soberly. to see all of Satan's activities for what they really are, invitations to do, uh, to do harm and to be harmed, to do destruction and to be destroyed. In Christ, you're equipped to watch for the devil's maneuvers. Wake up and watch. So what should you watch for? Let me give you some suggestions. Be careful, watch for spiritual and personal pride and an exalted sense of self-importance. Satan loves to see you be more intent on being right for Jesus than on being Jesus to everyone else for the sake of Jesus. He knows something that we easily forget. Spiritual pride makes us easy prey. Watch for the idea that he doesn't exist or that he has no real power. For an enemy who is seen as not existing or as impotent always has the advantage over us. Watch for a lack of love and a lack of forgiveness for others and an excessive love for self it makes you fall to the lie that getting the honor you're due, getting your way, having your say is a proper priority for your life and living rather than meeting and seeing the needs of others. Over my years of ministry, 
one of the great lies that I've seen Satan use in genuine believers is the lie that what matters most to Jesus is what matters most to me. That if I want something, Jesus must want it. And I want to say to you, as clearly and as lovingly as I can say this to you, what matters most to Jesus is what his father wants, not what you and I want. What matters most to Jesus is that God be glorified in all things, in the way we live, in the way we love, in the way we handle problems, in the way we handle other people, that God be glorified. What matters most to Jesus is not me. And what matters most to Jesus is not you. But what matters most to Jesus is that his father get the glory and that we together are his people. This family matters. Watch for a tolerance or acceptance of sin. Watch for those things that God says will bring harm. Watch for them especially when they're presented to you in the name of love or when they're presented to you with intimidation that would cause you to fear and cave. May I say to you, every Thou shalt not in the word of God is there because doing it will hurt you. And going contrary to God's plan and God's will for marriage, sexuality, or whatever will always bring human harm. By the way, if you've got young kids, you need to start teaching them God's will for marriage and sexuality, probably about kindergarten, in ways they can understand. Because the world is giving them a wholly different picture, even in the commercials they're seeing. You better get on it or you're going to be behind the curve. Be careful with a desensitization of sin or a redefinition of sin and evil where good becomes evil, evil becomes good, what is true becomes false, and what is false becomes true. It's happening at a rapid pace right now. Be very careful. Watch. So be sober. Think with your Bible open. Expect attacks all the time, at any time. And if you're drowsy, 
Wake up! You've been forewarned. You have an enemy. He's on the prowl, looking to devour. And he wants to devour you. You say, I don't like this. Yeah, who does? But I will tell you this. Things are getting much harder for us in the United States, but we've still got it so much better than a lot of others. Now, that's good. But my question to you and to me is, what will we do with the freedom we have now? Will we be faithful? Will we stand for what is right and good and true? The time is now. Our faith is a faith that's meant to be lived. So live it, sober and watching. Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, lover of our souls, God of truth and beauty and good, God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Forgive us, Lord God, for the times we've not been sober and we've not been watchful, for the times we've fallen to the seduction and the intimidations, for the times, Lord God, when we've caved, we've hidden, we've compromised. We've sheltered behind walls of a church building. Forgive us, Lord God, when we failed to love, when we've put our needs and our wants ahead of others in the body of Christ and insisted in having our way and having our say. Forgive us, Lord God, For those times when Satan has sifted us and our faith has proven weak, not strong. Restore us, Lord God. Restore us. Give us a love for Jesus greater than a love for ourselves. Make us willing, Lord God, to be made uncomfortable, disappointed, harassed, hindered, opposed, hated. Because the love of Jesus for us is so much richer, sweeter, deeper than having our own way 
or pleasing others. Grant, Lord God, us courage in the fight against this great enemy who is more cunning than we are and more powerful than we could ever be, but who cannot be greater than he who is in us. Find us, Lord God, in these days, faithful. Lord, I pray for those who might know today themselves to be fickle and have a weak faith, a faith of the head, or the faith that comes from some emotional experience. Oh, Lord God, that today you would help them to see that you want a whole life commitment. And that you alone are worthy of such a whole life commitment. That Christ Jesus gave everything he had and was so that we might be not partially yours, but completely yours in him. Grant that the fickle would become real and that the real would become stronger in faith. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.